Well, good morning, Abby. Welcome to uh, J- Jeremy's, to our honoured guest this morning. It's lovely to have you with us. And to embrace this Chesham tradition of uh, uh, the new mayor coming to St Mary's at the beginning of your, uh, uh, your year and to, for us to get to know you and you to get to know us and to uh, uh, we can pray for you as we've started to do this morning. It's been great to, as a, as a new rector as well, to get involved in the town. The, the, the street party for the Jubilee was amazing. It's been great. And it's been wonderful to, to get a, a passion also for uh, supporting Ukrainian refugees. And it's great to welcome some Ukrainians with us this morning. So welcome to you. Uh, many people here at the St. Mary's Church family are involved in local schools and charities and local businesses. And we want like you to see Chesham flourish. And uh, I know it's not always an easy job, so we want to thank you as well for what you do uh, on our behalf. You find us this morning at uh, St. Mary's in the middle of a sermon series based on St. Paul's great letter to the church in Rome, uh, considered the most important letter that Paul wrote. And the section we're in is all about the new life, uh, the new way of life that Jesus makes possible. Uh, and which one in three people throughout the world today are living out in their daily lives. And that's a lot of people. And rather than give you a sermon on politics or the environment or other good things, we're going to carry on what we do week by week, teaching the Christian faith. So uh, welcome to what we, we do. And we've actually got quite a challenge on our hands this morning, because chapter 7, there's a lot there of Romans Uh, where Paul describes this new way of life, the Christian life, in these words. If you you have to open up your service sheets, it's there, it'll also be on the screen. But have a look at verse 6, where Paul says, By dying to what once bound us, we, that is we Christians, have been released from the law, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code. So when you think about that this morning, let me just pray as we uh, look at that and think about that. Father God, help us to understand what the old written code was like and begin to taste something of this new way of the Spirit, we pray. Amen. So we all have a a moral code. Uh, Some are written codes, some are unwritten or personal codes. The written code of the town uh, council uh, is serve one another. Uh, It's a great motto. And here is another sort of service that Paul talks about, a service to Almighty God, one that looks beyond written codes to a spirit-led way of living. Now, the exam season is drawing to a close. If, like me, you've had a child going through GCSEs, studying English literature, then one book that's been discussed at length at our dinner table has been Robert Louis Stevenson's little book, Jekyll and Hyde. And let me remind you of the story, if you don't know it. Yes, there's a picture of the old, one of the original films. Uh, but it was a book written by uh, this Victorian, Robert Louis Stevenson. Uh, there is good Dr. Jekyll, who, as time went on, became unhappy with his life. And the reason he was unhappy is that, in his own words, every day I drew steadily nearer to that truth, that man is not only truly one, but truly two. I saw the primitive duality of man, he writes. I saw the two natures contending in the field of my consciousness. If I could rightly be said to be either, it was only because I was radically both. There was, in other words, 
within him both good and bad. Or if you're familiar with Star Wars imagery, there was the light side and the dark side. A virtuous self that wants to do what is right. Yes, that was there. But there was also a grasping, selfish self that wanted to give vent to every evil desire. And both of them were pulling away at each other, keeping the other from truly enjoying life. And when people would say, you know, people say, don't they go out and find your true self? Well, Dr. Shekel would say, well, which self? Because I've got these two natures going on inside me. But Jekyll uh, reasoned if I could uh, house these separate identities uh, in, in, apart from each other, then I could be removed from all that is unbearable in life. The immoral man or woman might go their way free from that uptight, upright twin, and the moral man and the moral woman could go on their path no longer exposed to disgrace by the actions of their evil other. So, of course, if you know the story, Jekyll comes up with a potion that enables him to separate out these two identities. And when he takes the potion, he becomes Mr. Hyde. He becomes a person who's completely selfish. His every thought centered completely on himself with no redeeming features. And as soon as he took the potion, Jekyll says, I knew myself at the first breath of this new life to be much more wicked, tenfold more wicked, sold a slave to original sin. And the thought braced and delighted me like wine. And as the book unfolds, Dr. Jekyll discovers that this other evil self is, in fact, far more evil than he had realized. And by the end of the story, it's Hyde, not Jekyll, who is in charge of his body. The seesaw, if you like, is weighted Hyde's way. This war within our hearts, this battle between good and evil, this conflict that rages within our souls, that it's, it's leaning towards the evil. And it's what Paul writes about in Romans chapter 7. And in order to explain all this, Paul uses his own heart as an example. Twenty times he says, I, in this chapter... In verses 7 to 13, he refers to his past experience, how the battle worked before he became a Christian, how he sought and failed to serve God in his own strength. And then from verse 14 onwards, he describes his present experience, how this internal battle works now he's become a Christian, how he now serves not in his own strength, but in the strength that God provides in a new way, in this way of God's spirit. And that's a way that Jesus has made possible. So there's a lot here. I'm not going to cover it all, but let's just pick out a couple of things. The old way to serve God and then the new way to serve God. So the old way to serve God, we um, see in verse 9 how Paul describes his past experience. Once I was alive, apart from the law, but when the commandment came, Sin sprang to life, and I died. It's his past experience. I was alive, sin sprang, I died. You see, Paul was just like Dr. Jekyll, upright, moral, and religious. He was raised in a very devout home, taught from the cradle to keep God's commandments. He became a zealous Pharisee, 
personally committed to serving God every day of his life, living out Israel's written code given to them by God through the prophet Moses over a thousand years before. And as a result, he thought that he was one of the righteous. There was no sin to speak of in his life. That God was pleased with his service that he did and that he was spiritually alive. But he says a day came when sin sprang to life in his consciousness, when he finally clocked what he was really like and how that hide, uh, that sin, had been hiding in his heart all the time. And he was not just an occasional sinner, occasionally did the wrong thing, but he was, as he puts it, utterly sinful. How he was, in fact, he says, spiritually dead in the water before God. And it was all to do with this written code. It was all to do with the Ten Commandments. And one commandment in particular, the Tenth Commandment, which is do not covet. Paul, he said, could tick the box on the other, he thought, on the other nine. He went through them, he thought, well, I haven't stolen, tick. I hadn't murdered, tick. I haven't lied, tick. I haven't misused God's name, tick. I've honored my parents, tick. I haven't broken the Sabbath, tick. I haven't worshipped idols, tick. But when he came to the Tenth Commandment, he hesitated to tick the box. And it's all to do with this word, covet. Because see, covet doesn't just mean wanting something that someone else has. It means to idolatrously want something, to inordinately want something. to The fact that you will not rest until you have it. That new car, that new uh, toy, that new... Um, I know I'm coveting about a new Kindle at the moment, so that's, that's my what I'm coveting over. You will not rest until you have it. Coveting is saying that there is something beyond God and his love that I've got to have to be happy. And that is the essence of sin. It's not resting in God's love and care that you, so that you can be content with what you are and what you have. It, and you know when we're coveting, when... Something gets between us and what we covet. And when we don't get it, we, we get angry and we get afraid because we're not going to be, get the thing that we want and we're disheartened and we're downhearted. This is the thing we think we must have to be happy. It's what we think will make me, me. And Paul realizes, despite all his best efforts to meet the written code, and he's made a far better stab at it than probably all the rest of us here, he could not stop coveting. He coveted even his reputation as a righteous man. He craved it. It mattered more to him than God himself. In fact, if you look at verse uh, 8, he says, Seize, Sin seizing this opportunity afforded by the commandment produced in me every kind of coveting. Uh, St. Augustine, in his confessions, writing about 350 years after Paul, tells the story of when he was 16 years old of being told not to climb over a neighbor's wall and eat their pears. And up to that point, the thought hadn't even crossed his mind to do that. And there were pears in his own garden to eat. But once he heard the command, his covetous heart got to work. Nobody's going to tell me what to do and what not to do. Until the thought so consumed him that he just had to do that. And that's what he did. He climbed over the wall and uh, stole the pears. He didn't even eat all the pears, he says. In fact, I was, I was sickened of them, and I threw the leftovers to the pigs. 
Well, that's coveting. That's the experience that stayed with Augustine. And uh, for many years, he was far away from God, but it troubled him. He couldn't claim to be a good man because he knew that was in his heart. Well, most of us live by a moral code. We believe in justice and uh, honesty and keeping our word and believing in caring and kindness, believing in generosity. We say we live up to that code pretty well, and we consider ourselves, as a result, to be good people. But when we place our code against the written code, against the Ten Commandments, etched in stone by the hand of God himself, we begin to say, well, maybe we're not so good as we thought we were. And especially when we read the command, do not covet, the battle going on in our hearts comes out into the open. Well, that was Paul's discovery, he says. That was his discovery. His religion had made him aware of his need, but it hadn't solved his problem. He couldn't couldn't deal with this part of his life. The old way of the written code just didn't work. The commandments didn't bring him closer to God. In fact, they left him further and further away from God. The old way of the written code became a burden to him. And the more and more that God's laws were laid on him, the more and more he came to resent those rules. And perhaps if you grew up in a, a religious home, that was your experience too, of that burden of God's laws. Here was a war going on in his heart and soul that he could not win. But not just in his heart. Isn't it in all our hearts? Isn't it the heart of the human problem? And isn't it why society is as it is? It's why you, we lock our doors at night and watch out for online fraud because people covet what we have, and is why in a nation we've never had so many possessions, and yet we're so racked with discontent, because content, well, it's never satisfied. There's an insatiable desire that um, uh, one of the first uh, billionaires, the American Rockefeller, was asked, how much money will be enough for you? Just that bit more. So for years, Paul hadn't seen it. Then one day, by God's grace, he met Christ, And his eyes were opened. And what had happened to Paul, well, could happen to us. Our eyes can be opened. We don't need a blinding light like Paul received uh, on the road to Damascus. All we need to do is look, like Paul, at the Ten Commandments to discover the true state of our hearts. Have you seen it? Do you feel the full force of what Paul is saying here? So what happened next? What, What changed with Paul? We'll go back to have a look at verse Six, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit, not in the old way of the written code. So that brings us to our second point. There's only two, the new way of the spirit. Verse, uh, verses 14 onwards, but let's just uh, look at verse 21. I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. In my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. So Paul has moved from the past tense to the present tense, for life before he met Jesus to life as a Christian believer. And he introduces us to a new kind of law. If you like, there's God's law with a capital L, but there are also laws with a small L, principles or forces which are at work within us, within our hearts. There is that same pull 
towards sin as before, we don't suddenly on becoming a Christian stop experiencing that inner battle. Even the great St. Paul says he has this battle raging on inside him. But now there is a new force at work in his inner being. He's now able to delight in God's laws. Gone is the sense of being burdened and weighed down by the written code. Gone is this sense of resentment. Gone is the need that people feel to run away from God. So what has changed? Well, Paul says, in my inner being, I now delight in God's law. That is what has changed. Rather than seeing God's law as something external, imposed from outside, God's law, by the power of the Holy Spirit, has been written on his heart. Before he was a Christian, Paul says, his moral side and his immoral, selfish side, his Jekyll and his side, well, they were equally poor, they were equally balanced, if you like, but even led to, lent towards the, the evil, towards um, the hide. But now that Paul has become a Christian, he says one of those sides, one of these natures is now the true me. He's not divided anymore. That's what's changed. Yes, still lives in him, but it's not his true self. Have a look at verse 20. He says, now if I do what I do not want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but it is sin living me, in me that does it. So the minute, bear with me with this, I know it's a complicated point that Paul is making here, but he's saying, as he trusted in Jesus Christ and he received forgiveness of his sins, the Spirit of God came into his heart to stay. And now the seesaw is different. Now on the side that wants to do what is holy and righteous and good, God is with him in that. And now it far outweighs that pull that he still feels towards sin and uh, sort of evil and selfishness and coveting things, it's now wholly outweighed by the fact that God is with him in his heart. And so it's a battle that in the past that he would always have lost, now he can begin to win. So how does that work out in practice? Say, for example, someone had the habit of going out and getting uh, smashed, embarrassingly drunk every Friday and Saturday night. From time to time, they try to stop, but they're soon drawn back into the same old pattern of excess and regret. They become a Christian, and they still feel that urge to drink. The temptation is to think, hmm, nothing seems to have changed. Maybe God hasn't accepted me after all. But Paul's point is, yes, you have changed, because that's no longer the true you. You won't find you get the same pleasure you once had. Your heart is in a different place. Your true self serves a different, better master now. You might need help to kick the habit, and for some of us that might be a lifetime's battle. But this is a battle you can now win because God is with you on that side of the seesaw. It's going to be a winning battle. Well, whatever it is that we feel pulls us in the wrong direction, habits we've been trying to break and longing to break for many points in our lives. Actually, the Christian way is not the way of the written code. It is to say that with God's help in our lives, strength will rise, and we can begin to be holy and righteous and good, which is all the things the law says it is, but we could never do. But because the Spirit of God comes into our hearts when we become a Christian, then we begin to fight that battle in a new way. So it's not about written codes, the Christian life. It's about this new way of the Spirit. 
And Paul has only just begun to uh, explain what that looks like. He's going to spend a whole chapter, chapter 8, and we're going to spend several weeks looking at it together. But I hope this morning we just had a, a taste of what the Christian life looks like. And that if you're not a Christian, it helps you to understand what Christians uh, are, are like. It's what excites us and it what motivates us. Because, as Paul says at the end of uh, chapter 7, he says, um, you know, without God, I'm a wretched man. But who will rescue me from this uh, body that's subject to these, this death? Well, thanks be to God, because I have a saviour, I have a deliverer, Jesus Christ. Let's up our heads to pray. Father God, thank you that the Bible shows us what we're like, as well as what you are like. And thank you for teaching us this morning something of the Christian way. And we pray, Lord God, that uh, as Paul, you would open our eyes to see that we're simply sinners in need of a saviour. And thank you that in that need, you provided Christ. Amen.